Turn with me this morning to Romans chapter 7. But on your way, actually, let's pause at Romans 5. We're headed to Romans 7, I think. God hasn't told me otherwise. But last week, I buried a really important point in a really bad joke. Don't get me wrong. I like a groaner. I like a good dad joke. But it wasn't the time or the place because it obscured a really important point. Romans 5, most people will agree, I think you'll agree, is the heart of Paul's letter to the Romans. And chapter, I'm sorry, uh, verse 20 and 21 of chapter 5 are the heart of the heart. They're the essence. They're the core. And in trying to be funny, I stepped on them. Let's read it again. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. So that sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Everything that we just sang about. We need to be saved. I mean, that's just true. Paul establishes that from the opening verses of this letter. We need to be saved. We're wicked. We're depraved. We're lost. We're going to hell. Condemned by a righteous God. And the law couldn't save us. Our works couldn't save us. Being a descendant of Abraham, even for those who were, never saved anyone. Only the grace of God made possible by the cross of Jesus Christ can save us, has saved us. I hope it saved us. I hope it saved you. Have you repented of your sin? Have you confessed your need for forgiveness? Have you gone to the cross and said, Jesus, save me? I know you can. I know you will. And I really, really need. If you, if you haven't, if... If that's a new idea, or if there's something getting in the way of you laying hold of that this morning, will you grab me after service? Will you grab any of the elders, pastors who will be standing in the corners after service? Because, because if, if you haven't made up your mind about the cross of Jesus Christ, that's the only thing that matters. I'm going to talk about a lot of other things, but that's what matters for you this morning. If you haven't said yes to Jesus... I'd encourage you, spend these next minutes praying, asking God, even if you're not sure if he's there, to reveal himself to you and to speak to your heart about your need for him. But if you have, those of us who have, that was chapter 5, really chapters 1 through 5. That was Paul reaching the crescendo in his symphony, we're saved by grace through faith. And having done that, having, having made that point, having reached that summit, Paul spends chapter 6, the last chapter we were in together, doing what Paul does. Having declared this marvelous truth, he says, okay, bring it. What are your questions? What are your concerns? What are your objections? I'm going to respond to them. I know, he says to, you, to his readers, I know what you're going to say. And I'm going to answer them before you even say it. I know you're going to say that the Vikings whomped the Packers in week one, but they always do. They lull you in with a false sense of complacency and break your heart. I get your point, he, he says in chapter six. I get that you have some concerns, some objections, some things you want to talk about. 
I'm going to explain why they don't hold up, why they don't hold water. That was all of chapter 6. And it's going to be all of chapter 7. Paul taking away, defeating his readers' objections, responding to their contrary arguments, addressing one after the other every possible source of confusion he can think of. So the reader is left staring with clear eyes, with unclouded vision at the beauty and majesty of the gospel of Jesus Christ, singing hallelujah, hallelujah. Paul's going to do in chapter 7 what he did in chapter 6. He's going to set them up, he's going to knock them down. And the objection that he's going to set up and respond to this morning, the issue that he's going to respond to is an important one, and it's a really familiar one to all of us. It's one that we can all relate to, I'm confident. And this is it. Now that I'm no longer condemned under the law, that means I'm free, right? Free to do what I want, any old time. No longer under the law, I can follow my heart. Yes and no, Paul is going to answer. Yes, if you're in Christ, you're no longer under the law. Jesus' death satisfied every claim the law ever had on us. But no, that doesn't mean you're free to follow your heart. At least not the way that we mean when we say that. That's not what we really want. It might think it's what we think we want. And Paul's going to explain, no, what we have is way, way better than what we think we want. Let's look at our text. Chapter 7, verse 1. Paul says, or do you not know, brethren? This is Paul returning to home base again. He's going back to the end of chapter 5. He's going back to the verses that we just looked at. He's done this twice before. Chapter 6, verse 1. So what does this mean, this gospel of grace? Does that mean that we get to keep sinning, that grace might abound? And for 14 verses, Paul said, no, that's not what it means. Chapter 6, verse 15, he says, wait, are you sure that isn't what it means? Because it sounds like that's what it means. And for another nine verses, Paul says, no, it's not at all what it means. Now in chapter 7, verse 1, Paul does it again. He asks rhetorically, are you maybe confused because you don't understand the law? Because the thing about the law, the thing that you have to remember, it only governs people who are alive. Chapter 7, verse 1, Do you not know, brethren, for I speak to those who know the law, Jewish believers, help your Gentile friends out. The law only has dominion over a man as long as he lives. Only as long as he lives. The ancient rabbis actually wrote about this. You wouldn't think that they'd have to, but they didn't want to leave any turned unstoned. And they wrote, if a person is dead, he's free from the Torah and the fulfilling of the commandments. And Paul's saying, I know you know this. But I also know that you're going to be tempted to act like you don't know it. You're going to be tempted to try to forget it. You're going to be tempted to reach back and appeal sooner or later to the law. And you really don't want to do that. So, he says... Let me try to convince you not to. Let me try to convince you you don't have to. Verse 2, let's try an analogy, Paul says. Maybe that'll help. For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she's released from the law of her husband and free, he's saying, to marry someone else. Till death do us part, but if death and we part, if death comes for either partner, the surviving partners are released from their vows free to remarry. 
Not free if they don't die. Verse 3. So then, if while her husband lives, she marries another man, she'll be called an adulteress. Because that's how it works. You can't just walk away from a marriage. And you can't pretend that you aren't married and marry somebody else and be married to two people at the same time. No, we don't do that, Paul says. But if her husband dies, still verse 3, she's free from that law so that she's no adulteress. It doesn't apply even if she's married another man. If your partner dies, Paul says, of course we're free to marry someone else. Okay, pause. Let's step out of what Paul is saying just to, to hit one point. We know, Jesus says, Peter and Paul elaborate, there can be situations, our situations in our lives, that are more complicated unfaithfulness, abandonment, circumstances in which divorce might be an option. Paul's not saying that's not true. He's not contradicting himself here. But here in Romans 7, he's also not teaching about marriage. He's using marriage as an illustration to make a different point. And for the sake of the illustration, he's keeping it simple. He's saying marriage is binding until it ends, and ideally the only way it would end is through the death of one or both partners. He's not teaching about marriage. He's using marriage to make a point. So far, so good? Okay, play. What does this have to do with grace? Paul's going to tell us, verse 4. Therefore, my brethren, go with me on this analogy. You also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another, specifically to him who was raised from the dead, Jesus. Okay, first thing you might notice, or you might not, but if you do, it's going to bother you, so let's get it out of the way. It's not a perfect analogy. Paul's a brilliant guy, but this is not a precise analogy. He just got done in verses 2 and 3 saying, if the husband dies, the wife is free to remarry, right? Here in verse 4, he, he changes it and he says, when we die, when we die with Christ, the way he talked about in chapter 6, now we're free to remarry. It's not precisely parallel construction. He bends the analogy a bit because he has to, if you think about it. He's saying we were married to the law, but then we died to the law, so we're free to remarry. We're free to be the bride of Christ. If he were staying lockstep right in line with his analogy, he'd have to say the law died, so we were free to remarry. The problem with that is that the law didn't die, did it? Jesus didn't destroy the law at the cross. What did he do? He fulfilled it, and in doing so, he freed us from the law. He tweaks the, 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 meta, the analogy here to make his point. For most of you, that isn't a thing. For most of you, you didn't even notice. For some of you, it's a big thing. And if it was a big thing for you, that's your answer. And for the rest of us, that's 90 seconds of your life you're never getting back. I'm sorry. But here we are. When we said yes to Jesus, verse 4, we became dead to the law. The analogy is bent, but it's not broken. Paul's point still stands. Because we're dead to the law, we're free to remarry. Remarry who? Jesus, him who was raised from the dead. Now, here's where we need to be careful, or we're going to miss Paul's point. This is where, if we're not careful, Paul's illustration is going to eclipse the point that he's illustrating. In dying to the law, the requirements of the law, we're automatically, automatically married to grace in the person of Jesus Christ. You and I, 
if we, if we take the analogy too far, we think about the scenario that Paul is presenting, husband dies, wife's still alive, we think, okay, she's got options. She could remarry, she could stay single. My mom stayed single. My dad died in 1995. My mom stayed single for 23 years. Never dated. 30 years with my dad was enough, apparently. <laughs> That's not an option for you and I spiritually. And, and this is Paul's point. We can be married to the law. That's how we were born. Or we can be married to Christ when we're born again. But we can't be single. We can be married to the law or married to Christ. We can't be unmarried. We have to pick one. And this is where we're going to pause today. Because what Paul just said, he actually said to tee up what he's going to say next. He says what he just said in service of this enormous discourse. He's going to begin in verse 7. Some of the chewiest, meatiest theology you find not just in Romans, but in the whole New Testament. But before we go there, before we rush into the tall weeds and start chewing meat and mixing our metaphors, let's, let's take a breath and consider the implications of what Paul just said. It's just a handful of verses, and it's verses that, quite honestly, Paul intends as a transition. But on the way to getting where he's going, he just said three things, I think, that are worth pausing and, and, and laying hold of this morning, worth, worth pondering, worth praying about. Three things. We have a partner, Paul just said. And in that partner, we find a purpose. And from that partner, we also have a promise. If you're a note taker, those are our three big points for the rest of the morning. Partner, purpose, promise. First point, we have a partner. That's what Paul just told us. Married to the law, married to Jesus. Those are our only two options. There is no C, none of the above. Born married to the law, born again, married to Jesus, cannot be unmarried. You're repeating what you already said, Patrick. What does that mean to me? It means if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, then you're the bride of Christ. You have a husband. You have a partner. You don't get to live like you don't. Those of you who have been married know what I'm talking about. If, and if you haven't been married, you've seen marriage. It's a complete game changer. Marriage, God's way, marriage the right way, changes everything. If I'm married and I take my vows seriously, now instead of making decisions based on what I want, what I feel like, what I'm in the mood for, now I'm making decisions based on how do I love my partner? What does she need? What is important to her? How do I bless her? How do I serve her? It's entirely different calculus. I have a friend who likes to say, God gave us marriage so we'd have a constant reminder of how selfish we are. As Christians, we know it's more than that, but it's not not that, right? Marriage reminds us of how selfish we are. Marriage, if we do it right, if we do it according to God's design, means never making another decision that's just about me again. Marriage, God's way, means always asking, how will this choice affect my partner? Is this the best way to love my partner? And it's a 24-7 commitment. 
When I said I do to Anne, I took on the ministry of loving her, not just at certain times of day when we're both home from work, not on certain days of the week, not in certain aspects of our relationship, all the time, every day, in every way. Even when I'm resting. Even when I'm sleeping. Rest, rest is biblical. Sleep, non-negotiable, a certain amount. I had somebody ask me last week if we sleep in heaven. Is, is sleep God-given or is sleep part of the curse? I don't know. I like to sleep. <laughs> but maybe that's just because I'm fallen. <laughs> Either way, I don't know the answer. But here, sleep is part of the deal. And I know a lot of times, at least once a week, ask my wife if you don't believe her, she tells me the most loving thing I can do is go to sleep. But, but even then, even resting, even sleeping, I can look at that one of two ways. I can look at that as an opportunity to recharge so I can get back to my ministry of loving my wife, or I can look at it as the reward I get when I'm done loving my wife. I got everything done on the honeydew less, honey. It, it's me time. See ya. In God's economy, there's no such thing as me time. There's no time off from loving my wife, even if we're not together in the same place. And here's the analogy Paul is crafting. If we're married to Jesus, there's no time off from loving him. If you're married here in this life, I might have just given you something to think about. Might be worth pausing to give yourself a heart check. Maybe even worth sitting down over a cup of coffee and talking to your spouse. How well are we loving each other? Are we one another's ministry, one another's priority? Conversation worth having if you haven't lately. The worst that can happen is you can, is you can affirm, yeah, we're doing great. I'm feeling loved. You're like, but but here's, the, here's the thing. That might be worth doing, but it's not Paul's point. Paul's not talking here about our earthly marriage. He's using earthly marriage as an analogy, as an illustration to pose the question, is Jesus our 24-7 priority? He's, that's, actually, he's not even asking the question. He's making the point. Just like, this is his point, just like when I said, I do, and became my ministry, my priority. When I said I do to Jesus, he became my ministry and my priority. We don't, as Christians, we don't get to live for ourselves anymore. We've taken on a ministry of loving our bridegroom with all our heart and soul and mind and strength. We made a commitment to ask with every decision we make in every part of our life, is this the best way to love Jesus? Is what I'm about to do a way to serve Jesus, to worship Jesus, to bless his name? If we're in Christ, we have a partner. That's just true. We also, here's the second point. If we're in Christ, we also have a purpose. Paul goes on to say at the end of verse 4, having a partner gives us purpose. What's that purpose? Bearing fruit to God. End of verse 4. I don't know my purpose in life. Sure you do. Paul just told you. That didn't used to be our purpose. 
Before we were saved, it was very much not our purpose. When we were in the flesh, verse 5, when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. And we know what that means. We were married to the law, but we were cheating on our spouse. Married to the law, but breaking our marriage vows. We were sinners, we couldn't help it. We were married to the law, but we were serving us. But now, verse 6, on this side of the cross, now we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the Spirit, not the oldness of the letter. Our purpose our comprehensive, overarching, all-inclusive mission is to love and serve our bridegroom, Jesus. I get it, Patrick. You've said it like six times now. Can we move on? I, I wish it were that easy. The problem is we live in a society that is dogmatically, adamantly, strenuously opposed to that mission. Just in the ways in which our society is stratified and compartmentalized. What am I thinking? What am I talking about? I'm talking about go back, go back to when we were primarily an agrarian society. Families, often multi-generational families, lived together, kept the home together, worked the land together, lived their lives as a unit, as a community. Fast forward to industrial society, all of a sudden one is going to work outside the home, the other is staying home. Another is going to school, maybe two people are going to two different jobs, maybe two people are working two different shifts. Compartmentalization, individualization. Fast forward another hundred years to the digital society, now we don't even have to leave the home to be compartmentalized. We can, but we can also spend all day, every day in the exact same space ensconced in our personal, portable, electronic, digital cocoons. Each in our own world, one person working, one person in school, one person scrolling social media, algorithm-driven, tailored uniquely, specifically for me. Our world, our society reinforces a message our flesh already desperately wants to believe, that my life is primarily for me and about me. Except it's not. Our lives are primarily for and about Jesus. We're married to him. He's our partner. From him, we get our purpose. I'm not saying let's throw away technology. I'm not saying let's go back to raising our own food and sewing our own clothes. I'm saying let's recognize the impact of technology and other forces in society on us pushing us, insisting that we ask, what's best for me? What will serve me? What do I want? If we're going to fulfill our purpose, we need to push back. We don't always do that well. I talk to people all the time, and by all the time, I mean all the time. I want to serve the Lord. I want to use my gifts. I want to love God's people, but my job really isn't conducive. I've got this house. It takes all my time. We moved. I can't even find a church. I've got a new relationship. It doesn't leave a lot of room for And, and the question I want to ask, and a lot of times I don't, because if I asked it every time I wanted to ask it, that, the question I often want to ask, did you pray before you took that job? 
Did you seek God before you started that project or bought that house? Did you, did you look for a church before you moved? How did God confirm that relationship to you, or did you just dive in? Now, the answer might be yes. The fact that I'm asking a question doesn't mean I know the answer. That all-consuming job might be your mission field. You, you might be in a church desert because God brought you to bring Jesus to that community. Your marriage and children might be your ministry right now. That's an awesome ministry. Just because things are hard doesn't mean you're not smack dab exactly in the middle of what God wants you to be doing. But you know, a lot of times when I ask the question, did you pray? Did you seek the Lord? How did you hear from the Lord? What I hear, well, I thought it would be good for me. Look good for me. It made sense to me. I thought it would be good for me, looked good to me, made sense to me. Here's the thing. It's not about us. Here's the other thing. We're not here to live lives that make sense. It made sense to me. There's two things wrong with that. It's not about me, and we're not here to make sense. We're here to live lives that love and bless and serve the Lord, lives that bear fruit. That's our purpose. And a lot of times, the decisions that the Lord leads us to, the choices that he puts before us, the ones that make the least sense bear the most fruit, right? You've seen this? Sometimes that fruit comes from a conversation that starts with a question, why are you doing this? This makes no sense to me. Can you help me understand why out of all the things you could be doing, you're doing this? And the answer, because God told me to, gets the attention. Why are you doing what you're doing? It doesn't make sense. Because God told me to, and the purpose of my life is to love him. I was talking to a pastor yesterday who was planning a church in New York City. And I said, what's your, what's your vision for the ministry? He said, we want to be a community of people living lives that make those around them reconsider what they think they know about Jesus and Jesus' people. My first thought was, man, i got to write that down. So I wrote it down. That's how I can say it back to you. <laughs> but my second thought is that should be all of us. And then that's what I said to him. I said, that should be all of us. He said, it should. And our hope is that a group of us doing it together, super intentionally, living our lives for Jesus together on purpose in close proximity can have a real impact on New York. And I wish you could, I wish you could hear the confidence in his voice. He's going to be in Colorado next month. I'm, I'm, I'm looking to see if maybe he can stop by. But, but beyond confidence, certainty. Certainty that a group of believers making Jesus their purpose individually and collectively, God will bless. They will bear fruit. He knows it like he knows his name. And, and, and that's actually our third takeaway from our text this morning. God has given us a partner. And a purpose, loving that partner, loving Jesus, loving people in his name. And he's given us, to go with those two things, a promise. Verse 4. If we embrace that partner and that purpose, we will not waste our lives. We will not labor in vain. We will bear fruit. We will bear fruit. When Paul says that, he's talking about you and me, we. But, but implicit in that, 
Implicit in what he's saying is it's you and me and Jesus. You and me who are in Christ Jesus. At first glance, we've heard that before. Check that box, move on. That's John 15, Patrick. I'm the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. Yeah, but don't run past it because you've heard it. Stop and ponder it. What are we called to do? Fall in love with Jesus. Make our lives about Jesus. Rest in Jesus and we'll be fruitful for Jesus. Paul's saying that. And he's saying more than that. Look again at verse 6. Now we've been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. Abide in me. Jesus says in John 15, and bear much fruit. What Paul is emphasizing, he's not adding, he's emphasizing as we abide in Jesus and only in, in Jesus will bear much fruit. Because what's the rest of the verse? John 15, 5, for without me you can do nothing. Remember the context of verse 6 comes from verses 1, 2, and 3. Paul says we're not unmarried. We were married to the law, we're now married to Christ. We'll be fruitful if and only if we remember we're only married to Christ. If we don't try to be married to Christ and the law at the same time. We can't be unmarried. Paul has made that abundantly clear. But we can also only be married to one person at a time, the law or Christ. We can serve under the law or serve in the spirit of Christ. We cannot do both. Well, that's obvious, Patrick. I, I promise you it's not. And if you, if you think about it for a moment, you'll realize that it's not. Think about how many people you know, people saved by the grace of Jesus Christ, who then proceed to put themselves right smack dab under the law. Maybe not the law of Moses, although some do. Within walking distance of this church, you can find a fellowship that believes and teaches. Now that we're indwelt by the Holy Spirit, we can and should keep all 600 points of Levitical law. And they try. Paul spent the entire book of Galatians telling us, you don't need to do that, you shouldn't try to do that, they do that. But even people who don't do that, Christ followers we're talking about, even people who don't put themselves under the law, often end up wrapped around some law, some set of rules, some system of legalism, these and thousand do's and don'ts. You've seen that. I know you've seen that. Why is that? Why do we go back to legalism? We want a measuring stick. We want a system. We want a scorecard, a way of keeping track of all the good we're doing. Why? Pride has got to be part of the answer, but the rest of the answer is fear. Fear if we don't do the right things, or we don't do the right things the right way, or we don't do the right things at the right time, or we don't do the right things often enough, consistently enough, Jesus won't love us. Jesus will stop loving us. If we don't do the right things, he'll give up on us, or he'll leave us. Why do we think that? Because that's what people do. That's what life has taught us, many of us, a lot of us. If we don't keep people happy, they stop loving or leave or both. That's 
what a lot of people in my life did when I was growing up, and I don't think I'm unusual. Okay, unusual, yes, but not in that way. <laughs> I've talked about my dad before, just one example. I had to earn my father's love, period. If I did the right thing, he was there. If I did the wrong thing, he wasn't. I quit baseball in fifth grade. He loved me less because of it. I'm not guessing he told me 20 years later. Not that I didn't already know. Still held it against me. If I didn't score double digits playing basketball, he loved me less. I didn't go to the college he wanted me to go to. He loved me less. I didn't go follow the career that he picked out for me. Loved me less. Didn't marry the woman that he pushed into my life. Loved me less. With every choice I made, he loved me less. With every choice other people made, he loved them less. Until he ran out of love for anybody and just took his own life. And, 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 and the point isn't, oh, poor Patrick. My story's a cakewalk compared to a lot of yours. My point is I grew up seeing, learning, believing, I think most of us did, that love is conditional, contingent on performance. The things we do and don't do, how well and how often we do them, has everything to do with how much love we receive. So we take that idea, what we've seen and learned, and we apply it to other relationships. A lot of times we take it into our marriages. I need to love her just the right way, or she's going to be really mad. If I mess up enough times, she might leave. And, 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 and the insidious thing is that it might, also, it might actually be true if she grew up the way I grew up, like maybe you grew up, thinking that that's what love is. It's a reward for getting it right. And if you behave badly, well, I'm not going to reward that. I'm not going to reward bad behavior with my love. Took me 10 years of marriage after already knowing my wife for 10 years before we got married. Took me 20 years to believe that Anne loved me no matter what. For me to trust no matter what she wasn't going to leave. Question. Don't get lost in the illustration. Come back to Paul's point. Do we believe Jesus isn't going to leave? Or do we think that we need to keep proving our worth, keep earning his love? We don't have to earn his love, Paul's reminding us this morning. We already have it. We have his love. Nothing can separate us from his love. And our worth is in him. Not in anything that we do, but in everything he's done. His promise to us is that he'll never leave us or forsake us. And if we rest in that, if we trust in that, if we believe that and abide in that, we will bear much fruit. That's the second part of the promise. Apart from him, we can do nothing. With him and in him, abiding in him, we will do great things. Anne promised me at our wedding, she'd actually promised a long time before, but she promised me again, I'm not going anywhere. She said those words. She said it and it was true. But our marriage got so much better 10 years later when I decided to believe it. It was already true. But it was years later that I started to believe it. It was years later that I really started to play to win and not play to not lose. Just loved her rather than obsessing about what would happen if I didn't love her exactly the right way. 
because I decided to believe even if I messed up, even if I didn't love her well, there'd be grace. She demonstrated that often enough. I finally believed it. And you know, it is so easy to love someone when you believe that they're with you because they want to be, when they know absolutely everything there is to know about you, and they say, yeah, and I'm staying anyway. Jesus knows everything about us. And he's said to us, I'm staying he says to us, I promise, I'm not going anywhere. I didn't go to the cross to bail on you now. Do I want you to love me and make me your priority? Of course I do, Jesus says. But you got to stop being terrified of disappointing me. You're going to. And when you do, there'll be grace. I'll still be here. I don't want you to be afraid of me, Jesus says. I want you to be in love with me. Because he's in love with us. He doesn't want us to serve to earn his love. He wants us to serve from his love, to serve in his love. Let me be your partner, Jesus says. Not sin, not yourself, not the law, me. Make loving me your purpose, Jesus says. Not out of duty and obligation, out of joyful gratitude. Because I promise as you do, I'll be there with you. I promise you'll have newness of spirit, verse 6, my presence in you, my power upon you. And that promise will bear so much fruit, Jesus says, as we abide together, you and me and I and you. We will bear so much fruit as we partner together. So what's the takeaway as we wrap up? What's, what's, what's the action step this morning? I said earlier, there might be something to talk about with your spouse. I'll leave that to you, unless you want help, in which case, invite us along. Helping couples put Jesus in the center of their marriage is one of the most important things that we do here. But, but whether you talk to your spouse about the message or not, the action step I want to leave you with, talk to your partner about it. Talk to Jesus. Set aside some time and pray. Jesus, am I your partner? Am I letting you be my partner? Am I married to you? And if I am, what kind of marriage is it? Am I devoted to you? Search me, know me, show me, show me, me the way that you see me. Is my devotion wholehearted? Half-hearted? Not even? Are you my purpose? Am I building my world around you or am I asking you to fit into my world, my life, my plans, my preferences already in progress? Jesus, x-ray my heart. Do I trust you? Am I believing your promises? And do the people around me see me believing your promises? Can people tell I'm trusting in something greater than me, someone greater than me? Am I living a life that's about more than me? Jesus, am I letting you be my partner? Am I making you my purpose? Am I believing your promise? And if not, why not? Jesus, search me. Show me what's getting in the way. First step to building trust with anyone building relationship with anyone, having that conversation. Let Jesus remind you of what's true. Let him remind you that he loves you. 
and then have the relationship and watch what happens. And watch Jesus keep his promises. Let him show you that he loves you. Let him prove that he's always there for you, that his grace is always available and always sufficient. Let him open your eyes, our eyes, to see he's with us, even to the end of the age. He's not going anywhere. Jesus, we read those words, and we say yes, amen. But the fear runs so deep. The experiences of our lives have left such an imprint. Jesus, we need to ask for supernatural help, and you want us to. Would you overwrite what our personal histories have written, what people have written? Would you shake the etch-a-sketch? Would you show us, remind us of what we see in your word, of what we see in our lives, of what we see in the lives of people around us? You are faithful. You keep your promises. Your answers are yes and amen. And as we yield, as we abide, as we make you our purpose, as we surrender our pride and enter into partnership with the creator of the universe, the redeemer of humanity, I'll remind us of your promise even if we can't see it, even if our senses aren't equipped to detect it, there is fruit. The fruit that you intended for us from the good works you prepared for us before you laid the foundation of the earth. Jesus draws us into you deeper, deeper still. Teach us to abide.